have begun on this series, Christmas Memories, and so this week we're looking at Isaiah 11 through, uh, in the weeks to come, Isaiah 12. And thinking of the memories, I, I thought it'd be good for us to look at those passages because you may not realize it or not, but in Isaiah is the first mention of the Christmas tree. There's a look at next week as we look at the Christmas card. It talks about a banner, and then the week after that, the first Christmas carol. So what I wanted to do is just begin by sharing with you... Um, a few of the things uh, with regard to Christmas history and the Christmas tree. And I'm thankful to Dorothy Hansen, who does uh, some of the research for me. So she, she looked in, and did some work and found out that back in the 7th century, a monk from Crediton, Devonshire, went to Germany to teach the Word of God. He did many good works there and spent much time in Thuringia, an area which has become the cradle of the Christmas decoration industry. So over a thousand years ago, St. Boniface went as a missionary to the German people, came across a bunch of pagans who were worshiping an oak tree. And uh, he, recognizing that, began to teach them about Jesus. And, and he actually did some kind of thing where he uh, cut it down. And there was, I, mean, I don't know all the story around it, except for he turned their attention to a fir tree and said, let this be the symbol of the Trinitarian God. And they're told that he used that, that fir tree in its triangular shape to describe the Holy Trinity as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those people began to see as a symbol this Christmas tree um, rather than the oak tree. And it was from that, around the 12th century, that they began to find places where and have history of taking fir trees and they would actually hang them upside down from the ceilings at Christmas time around throughout Central Europe. Now, that's not a great thing for ornaments and for um, candles that they were later going to do. But it wasn't until about the 16th century that fir trees were brought indoors at Christmas time. And many believe that Martin Luther began the tradition of decorating trees to celebrate Christmas. In fact, one Christmas Eve, about the year 1500, he was walking through snow-covered woods and was struck by the beauty of a group of small evergreens. Their branches, dusted with snow, shimmered in the moonlight. And when he got home, he set up a little fir tree indoors so he could share this story with his children. And he decorated it with candles, which he lighted in the honor of Christ's birth. Some historians trace the lighted Christmas tree to Martin Luther, where he attached these lighted candles to a small evergreen tree, trying to simulate the reflections of the starlit heaven, the heaven that looked down over Bethlehem on the first Christmas Eve. Well, what I want to share with you is in the Bible, there's uh, the, the references to trees, there's many of them, and it actually begins in Genesis, and you go to the very first part of the Bible, and they talk about a tree that's in a garden. And then if you go to the very end of the, the Bible, the very last chapter, Revelation, and it talks about this city and this river that, it, that is running in the middle of it, and on either side are a tree, and this tree gives fruit monthly, and from it, its leaves bring healing to the people. Well, what's interesting is that in the middle of all this, there is another tree. And and I would call it the Christ tree. It's found in Isaiah in chapter 11. And as you read about this, you'll find that there is this little tree that is a shoot that comes up that that Isaiah talks about. And so if you, you look at Isaiah chapter 10, verses 33 through verses 11, chapter 11, verse 9, you'll see the story about this first Christmas tree. It says in verse 33, 
See the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. And look at verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I remember reading that and thinking, um, so what does all that mean? It's beautiful, isn't it? It's poetic. It's rich. It's full. But what does that mean? This, this little shoot, which I would call the first Christmas tree in that sense, coming out from the stump. Well, I want to share with you what are some important insights from this word that Isaiah gives us. And some of you may this morning feel like you don't have a lot to offer. Well, as we look at this little Christmas tree, I want you to be encouraged. Some of you may, may look at your situation to be worried about a job search or a financial setback, or you may be concerned about an illness, or you may be concerned about um, a need for companionship in your life, loneliness, other things like that. I just want you to know that I believe this little tree that we're going to look at gives you encouragement. And, and in some cases, you might be wondering about God's love, his compassion for you. And again, as we look at this passage, there's, there's an answer to that. Or maybe you wonder, can I ever change? Will my situation ever change? You look at the world and you go, is it even possible? And again, as you look at this, there is the promise of what God will do. So let's look at this. The very first insight I want you to look at is, is just to notice in chapter 11, verse 1, that it's a little tree. It's important to notice that. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, verse 1. And you can't read Isaiah 11 without really reading those first few verses before it in chapter 10, those verses 33 and 34. In fact, really, to read Isaiah 11, you need to have a whole context of Isaiah 1 through 10, but we don't have time for that. So I'm just going to have you look at, if you would, at verses 33 and 34. He says, See, the Lord Almighty will lop off the boughs with great power. You get these big, huge branches. You can see them from the tree. And the lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones that rise high in the sky will be brought low. And he will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. And Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. See, Lebanon was known for its huge trees. And what was happening in that time when Isaiah was writing, it was a time when there was a lot of, a lot of doom and gloom. There was the people that he was speaking to specifically in Jerusalem in that southern kingdom were, were rather proud and haughty. And so were the people in the northern kingdom in, in, in that area of Lebanon as well. 
And at that time, when he's writing, Lebanon was going to join forces with this northern kingdom to attack the southern kingdom. And Isaiah stands up and says, you can look at all their pride and all their gifts and all their strength and all that they have and the wealth that they have. And guess what? God's going to cut them down. God will bring them down to size. And he starts to prophesy about this, this northern nation of Syria that will come through and will wipe out the land. There's a, a, a prophecy that occurs in chapter 2 before that, verse 10, and, and it shows God's attitude towards this sense of arrogance that stands apart from God and says, you know, I don't, I don't need you, God. Or, or even the arrogance that gives lip service to God. Even the arrogance that can be found doing religious things and yet in their heart doesn't know the sense of brokenness, the sense of dependency. And so he says, here's God's attitude towards this prideful position. He says, go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled. The pride of men will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and the lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower, for every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. There is a day, he says, there is a day that's coming where God in all his fullness and mighty and in his glory will be seen. And then in verse 22, he makes his plea to people. He makes a plea to us. He says, stop trusting in man. Who has but a breath in his nostrils? Of what account is he? This, this idea of, of um, don't look to your own, your own ability, strength, and gifts to figure out your situation. Now, he's not saying don't use those things that God has given you. God has given us great and wonderful things and talents and abilities, but he's saying live in such a way that you have a heart that is humble and dependent and willing to recognize that each and every one of these gifts are given to you by God and as a result of that, you want to use them in a way that bring honor and glory to him and not to yourself. He says, in a sense, stop trusting in man with all his wealth, all his power, all the things that he has and he's assembled, that he thinks in some way by what he has and what he's been given, he is able to make things in his life go according to the way he wants. He says, you know what, really, he is dependent on this. He, has got, he is like any other person by a breath that he breathes in and out. And when the moment that's gone, so also is all that he thinks he has around him and assembled. And so he goes back to this first Christmas tree and he he says in comparison to what we may trust in, this first Christmas, this work of God, the stirring of God, the things of God often start really small. They're not necessarily huge and grand. There's a real encouragement in that, isn't it? Those things when God begins to move and begins to work, it says here that that first Christmas, it was just a shoot, it was just a twig. And some translations actually say it was a tender shoot. You get this idea of its weakness. It's so little, it's so tender that you could easily rip it off. In fact, when Jesus was born and news came to um, King Herod, what did King Herod do? He tried to rip that off. He said, every, every child under two years of age through this area in this area of Bethlehem, go and, and slaughter them all. Right? But even God's hand is on that as he moves them. God has the ability even to, to keep his small work alive. 
And if you notice where the shoot is coming from, I think it's an interesting statement again of the of this littleness, this this humbleness. It says that this shoot comes up from the stump of Jesse, not from the famed Goliath killing David, not from the renowned and wise Solomon, not from some hero of the faith. But he says it comes out of the line of Jesse. He lifts up this small, unknown man named Jesse and says out of that stump comes this work of God. And in many ways, that should give us hope. I mean, if you're really in touch with your brokenness, you're aware of your need, I just want to share with you, be encouraged. If you're in a place where you're kind of in that place of dependency and you're, you're wondering, you know, God, I don't know. Here's the thing. God loves to use that which is small. That which, when a person looks at themselves and they go, you know, I don't have a lot, but I'll give it to you. God loves to work in your situation. You might be going, you know, I don't have the gifts or the talents to do this, but I feel this prompting, this leading, I'm supposed to be doing this. And and, and God says, that's great. I love to confound the wise with the foolish. I love to take those who seem very weak and make them strong. Jesus would go around. He would speak a certain message often, I think, from place to place. He's an itinerant preacher, and he would use messages that he would use over and over again. And one of them is the message of, of the Beatitudes that you hear of when he says, oh, blessed are the poor in spirit for what? Theirs is what? The kingdom of God. It means the rule of God can move in. When a person understands that I'm just a twig, I'm just a tender twig. I don't have a lot to offer, but God, what I do, I want to give it to you. I just want you to know you need to be encouraged. Because Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor because they're broken. Because when they come in their brokenness, they know that they can only do so much with themselves. And as a result of that, they come to the end of themselves. And when you come to the end of yourself, you're able to begin to believe and say, God, you can do what I can't do. And God loves the faith. Like Mark said, he loves to come in and deliver. And so you see in this first Christmas tree, this little twig. Because God loves the the humble, the unknown couple named Mary and Joseph. The no-name town called Nazareth. The helpless little infant born to a stable. Placed in a food trough for a bed. And he sends a bunch of low-life shepherds, that's what they were considered, to gawk and stare at this great, incredible wonder, which is just a little baby. And then you go on and you see not only is it a little tree, it's a vital tree. In fact, it's a vital tree because it looks like it's dead. It looks like it can't give a whole lot of life off. But it is actually full of life and promise for one reason. Because God's in it. The things that look like they just don't have the life or the ability or the, 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 the zest to make things happen, it doesn't really matter. If you look at chapter 11, verse 1 again, it says a shoot will come from the stump. You ever seen stumps and you've had them? I, I remember as a kid, I looked at some of those stumps and I, I wondered, you know, why don't we, you know, doesn't the thing just rot away? What's, what's up with the thing? I have now a, a tree that I, I cut down in every few Weeks or so, these little, I mean, this is, this is something that should be dead. Every, this thing won't die. What I want you to notice here is, is, is at this time when God is saying that he's going to cut down this lofty arrogance and pride and he's going to replace it with this small little twig that is open and available to his presence and his power and his life, he makes this statement 600 years before. Now, I gotta tell you, for me, to wait six minutes is a difficult thing. Six days? Sixty days? Six months? Six years? 
60 years. Can you imagine 600 years? God says, I'm going to cut this off and it will be a stump. And you're going to begin to wonder as a nation, as a people, you're going to wonder, you're going to look at this thing and you're going to go, how in the world? This thing's just dead. And then one day, this little branch will begin to grow up out of it. In fact, that's what he says. He says, I want you to take a look at this because God says it will come out of this stump and from its roots, a branch will bear fruit. And this word branch is a common designation from the prophets with regard to speaking about the Messiah to come, the Deliverer. In fact, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2 says, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and, glor- and glorious. Zechariah at one point says, Listen, O high priest of Joshua and your associates seated before you who are men of symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. says it again in Zechariah 6.12. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. A couple other times in Jeremiah, and this specifically, Jeremiah 33, 14 and 15. The days are coming to close the Lord when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I'll make my righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. Uh, I want to tell you, if God has spoken to your heart about something, you've been praying about something, your heart has been, and you know, you know at a time, and it seems like it was a long time ago, and you're beginning to lose faith and and trust in, in this prayer for whatever it is God is doing. He's placed this desire in your heart, and He has come to you, and He said, I will fulfill that desire. It may not look like what you want it to be, but He says, I will do it. I want you to know, 600 years they waited and God did what He said. He will always, always come through with what He tells you He's going to do. He's going to do it for you. You may really wonder, but you know what? God says if you give me your desires, because He loves your desires, and you place your desires in His hands, and you go, but I can't make this happen. He goes, wonderful, because it's a little tree, and it's a vital tree, and it is also a fruitful tree. It will be fruitful. That's what he goes on to say. He says, he says this branch, this, this, this Messiah, he'll bear fruit. In fact, Jesus will be the most fruitful leader that has ever lived. No one will compare to him. When he lived on this earth, you watched him walk and you saw what he did. You, his teaching changed lives. His, his healing transformed people and made them whole. His whole life was on a cross in order to take away our separation and, and the things we have done that has displeased Him and dishonored Him and has hurt Him and our sin has been placed on Him so that we could have life. He is the most fruitful leader that has ever lived. And and so He goes on and He says in chapter 11, verses 2-5, through let me show you the character of this one who has come to lead you. You have to understand this. Here's this little tree. This little tree that doesn't look like it can do much, but all you need is an available heart. And in it is vitality if God's in it. If you've opened your heart and said, God, I want you in it, you have the power and life of the resurrected Jesus Christ in you. And it will bear fruit. It will bear fruit. And that's what he he goes on to say. Let me give you the character of this one who has opened his heart as the Messiah leader. 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him and the spirit of wisdom. And, and you have to note the word spirit is used seven times in, in ancient history, specifically in biblical um, literature. The words, the, the, the numbers are important. And the number seven is particularly important and one that talks about perfection and completeness. Seven times the spirit of the Lord will rest on him in a general statement. Then the spirit of wisdom and of the spirit of understanding and the spirit of counsel and the spirit of power and the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. All these will dwell upon him. It's really interesting in the Old Testament from time to time, like in Judges chapter um, 11, verse 29, it says the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. A little bit later in Judges 13, 25, the spirit of the Lord began to stir in Samson. What you find here is, is not a, just a stirring and, and not just a coming upon. You have the idea of the word rest, which means to dwell, which means to, to so fully come upon Jesus that the presence of God is all over him. And what I think is really cool about this passage is, is in chapter 11, you see this God dwelling in Jesus. And there's almost a sense of his humanity. Is he, just like you and me, depends on the Holy Spirit of God, that as he opens his heart, because he is the little tree who is so open to God, and he is the vital tree because he allows the life of God so fully to flow through him, he is also the most fruitful tree. And yet we all have that ability to have the Spirit of God rest upon us. Just a few chapters over in chapter 9, he, he describes one who will be born of a virgin. And then he goes on and he talks about him being a wonderful counselor, mighty God. He uses titles that are specifically divine titles. So in chapter 9, you have this divine child. In chapter 11, you have this human child who is full of the presence of God. Like you and me can be. Our hearts, if we're open to him, can have the presence of God living through us. Because every one of us have the ability to be dependent on him. Now, none of us will be without sin, right? But every one of us has the ability for the Spirit of God to come in, to move into your life in such a way that you can have the presence of God all over you. And he tells us this. Verse 3. And a lot of times people tie the end of verse 3 with verse 2, and you really shouldn't. Because he goes, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. We've already been told that the fear of the Lord will rest upon him. He's changing things now. He's turning away from the presence of God being poured out on him to the presence of God now beginning to move through him. And he uses the words, and he will delight. And then he goes on and he talks about he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not... He will not decide by what he hears with his ears. It's very interesting. The word delight, and commentators um, talk about this, and it's, it's really interesting. The word delight really goes back to the sense of smell. Like when the Lord would delight in the sacrifices, this, uh, this aroma of a heart broken unto him, which would come up before his presence and go, oh, that smells so good. These people that I've made, they, they love me, they, and they, their hearts are open to me. Well, here you have this idea of Jesus who delights in the fear of the Lord. The idea is that he has the ability, and the sense of smell is, is one of the senses that is the most um, essential to a human being. We can be fooled by what we see. People can, can dress and look and do things that when you look at it, you go, wow, they look, really, they look like a really good religious holy person. You can be fooled by, by what a person says because people use their words to manage what you think about them. But smells are a little harder to cover up. In fact, it's such an essential thing that they say that you can often, like, you remember smells that when you're a child, you can remember almost the, the, the exact memory. 
The, the idea is that here's this Jesus who has this ability, when he sees people, he can, he can actually, by the sense of his smell, he can, he can tell the aroma of a broken heart. Isn't that cool? So that when he walked on this earth, he was able to divide out so clearly, and he could see people who looked holy, he could see people who talked about being holy, but he could smell. He could actually know the heart of someone who wanted him. And I did. what great hope that gives you. If you want Jesus, He knows your heart, you just open it up to Him. And He wants to get involved in it, in what you're about. And so you get this idea of this incredible leader who not only is He filled with the Spirit, not only is He um, is one who is this impartial judge and ruler, but he also is effective because what he says, he just doesn't speak vain and empty words. Nothing he says comes back vain. And then you get this idea of, of his dependability. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness to sash around his waist. Every day he dresses the same. Every day you can depend on him. Every day. And then we look at this last part of the tree. The most beautiful part, because it's the most fruitful part. He says he's going to be a fruitful leader. And he says this tree, not only is it a little tree, and is it a vital tree, and is it a fruitful tree, but it's a heavenly tree. It's this tree that is a, has the ability to change things that by nature don't look like they can be changed. Right? It's incredible because you, you read through this and you see this, the cow feeding with the bear and the young lying down, the tiger eating straw. This is not the kind of animals we know. The heavenly tree is the hope, really, I think, of every heart. That we can know God's love and we can express God's love. That we can know our God and be known by someone who knows the very depth of who we are. You know, I was reading this, this thing the other day and, and I, I, was just, I was kind of taken back by it. Guess what? The one single word which is most repeated and it's found on, on a condemned death row convict's lips. The one word that they find the most often at the very end when the person makes his last final statement, they record those statements. What word do you think they say the most? Well, an analysis of the final statements of all 446 men and women that Texas has executed since the Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty back in 1976, including just a few weeks ago, reveals that one word is by far more frequently used than any other one. Over 130 times the word Lord is used. 132 times the word death is used. 175 times the word God is used. 211 times the word sorry. 243 times the word thanks. But you know what every heart longs for? Over three times more than any other word is used, over 630 times it's used, is the word love. There they are. They're sitting before their death sentence, ready to be executed, and they're speaking about love. I think that's so incredible. And here you have this passage that shows God coming and changing the nature because of His incredible love that He has for each and every person. And as a result of that, as a person in, in their humility, their littleness, allows the vitalness of God to come into their life to make them fruitful, He brings about character changes that we could never do on our own. If you're open to it. It doesn't happen overnight. I, I know that for a fact. I um, was... Uh, just about a week ago, I think it was, um, a little over a week ago, I have a dog, two of them, but one of them is a, about a two-and-a-half-year-old puppy um, named Tessa. 
And we had the, a guy who, who was a friend of ours who plows our driveway. And I live out in the country, so it's not one I'm going to shovel. Anyway, um, he came in and put these stakes in all around, you know, in order to make sure where the driveway was and they could outline it and stuff like that. Well, put that in. I came home. I was kind of, you know, I'm going, oh, good. I'm glad that's in place because it's probably going to get cold soon, etc. I come out later that day and these stakes, a number of them look like this. I have to share, I wasn't real happy. I wasn't just mildly upset. I was really angry. So I went out there and showed the dog and said, look, and I got, I got the, the better steak, so she wouldn't get the, you know, like reasoning with this little dog, um, big dog. Anyway, no, no. And, I, you know, I really let her know, no, you don't do that. And, um, so then put them all back in, not even a day later, come back out, and there's a whole bunch more that look like this. Now I'm down to just a few stakes. I'm, I have to say I'm enraged. I'm, I'm more than, than I'm angry. I went through the whole routine again with the dog, and the dog's looking at me. The dog's kind of like, oh, man, what did I do? So last Sunday, I get done. I speak this message on gratefulness and about you know, the lousy odds of Thanksgiving. And I go out there in the afternoon, and all of them but like one or two are now gone. I felt rage. I expressed rage. And, and I remember just as it was going on, I just felt, um, in fact, afterwards I felt so convicted. I felt guilt. I felt shame. I said, God, how can this be? How can out of this one life stream come rage and then in the morning love? And I just started praying and, and I said, God, I, this can't be. And he said, it's almost like he puts his arm around you. And he's not, God is so cool when he convicts you. He doesn't sit there and, you dummy. You know, those are messages that you get from either parents or other authorities. He is such a loving God when you get in relationship with him. He puts his arm around me and goes, you know, uh, the dog's nature is to chew. And, uh, and, he's, and I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in my mind, I go, you know what? I have these fiberglass posts that I use for the horses that go down to the barn. I pound them all along the driveway. Grace says, don't put them by the door. We're not going to forget. Anyway, I won't go into that. That's a whole other story. Sorry, Grace. Um, I put all these fiberglass things up. They've been fine. And, and it was like God said, you know what? You know, that dog chews. And I start to think to myself, it's nature. It's not going to change. And I read this passage of God and it goes, yes, it will. Nature is going to change and reflect the love of God. Not necessarily my dog's nature of chewing, but God has allowed for my nature to change. I was sharing this, and some of you women are going to come and go, oh, don't be so mean to your dog. Okay, and I'm not, okay. Um, but I had someone come up to me and say, you know what I thought was really cool? That you were even aware and noticing that going on. And I just say glory to God, because honestly, that's what I really, that's what it's about, isn't it? God, that's what this meal's about. There is a God who loves you so much that he has given himself to anyone who in their smallness says, I can't do it. And in this vitality allows the life of God come in to make you fruitful. And he will do it. So I'm going to ask, as the servers come forward, This meal is not just bread and juice. This meal represents the work of God in your heart, His grace and His goodness to love you and transform you.
and to bring about this world that our hearts hunger for.